<laughs> Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Georgia Heart Grand Rounds. We're so glad that you can join us this morning. We have an exciting program for you today. Before we get started, I'd like to recognize that Grand Rounds is provided to you by Georgia Heart Institute with the generosity of grants from our industry partners. The planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with commercial interests. To claim CME credits for today, be sure to take our survey at the end of the program. If you're viewing online, the link will be posted into the chat. If you're here in person, you will receive the QR code at the end of the session. So be sure to grab one. Also be sure to sign in. If you didn't sign in when you get here, sign out because if you don't sign in, then it's like you were never here and it's difficult to claim credit. So be sure to do that. Um, and now I would like to ask Dr. Samadhi to come up and introduce our guest speaker, Dr. Chahal. Good morning, everyone. Um, I, I tell you, when you, when you start uh, with a big Thanksgiving feast and you're really, really hungry, this is what we've got in front of us this morning. Um, we've got an amazing speaker that I wanna take a minute and just read his bio, um, but then obviously he'll kind of take us to the next level. And I was, I was saying to several of the fellows up here, this is really the future. This is where medicine is going and you're gonna see um, that it's actually here today, as Dr. Chahal will tell us. So Dr. Anwar Chahal is a clinical and translational scientist, originally from the United Kingdom, um, where he completed medical school, internal medicine residency at King's College Hospital, um, one of the premier places there, um, and fellowship in general cardiology, advanced imaging, and inherited cardiovascular diseases at St. Bartholomew's Heart Center and University College London. These are really top places. Um, I, I went to medical school in England, so I'm familiar with some of this. Um, as part of his clinical investigator program, he completed a PhD and an American Heart Association funded postdoctoral fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. He trained in cardiac electrophysiology at University of Pennsylvania. Since 2020, He's led an independent research group investigating cardiomyopathies, arrhythmias, sudden death syndromes, combining state-of-the-art imaging with electrophysiology for deep phenotyping um, and with high, high throughput omics studies. And, and he'll explain to you what that is. He is the founder and clinical director of the Center for Inherited Cardiovascular Diseases, and consultant cardiologist and electrophysiologist at Wellspan Health in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's a research adjunct faculty at the University of Pennsylvania and a research scientist at the Mayo Clinic and an honorary consultant at St. Bartholomew's Heart Center in London. So uh, we've asked Anwar um, to share with us uh, what cardiovascular genomics looks like in precision medicine today. Um, and I think that you'll find out that, you know, we don't, we shouldn't all be treated the same, the same problems, low ejection fraction, sarcoid, amyloid, arrhythmia, sudden cardiac death. We can get to the root of the problem. We can understand the genetics and we can modify that. So I can tell you that five, 10 years from now, if Dr. Chahal has his way, there are going to be these incredible centers of precision medicine. And we certainly are a huge fan of that and would love to learn more. So Anwar, without further ado, please come up. 
Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm just going to ask Billy, um, can you hear me fine there? Super. Well, thank you very much for the kind invitation to present um, today. Um, I have no um, COI or RWI. Learning objectives, we're going to cover these three key things. We're going to go through some cases and apply guideline recommendations for what we would do for sort of genetic testing. Uh, hopefully, we're going to impart onto you the importance of cascade family screening using clinical and genetic testing and how that actually changes when curveballs arrive and we end up going back to the patient and then to the family and, and back again. And then I want to give you a, a very brief overview of precision medicine, precision health, including gene-first screening strategies. So uh, we'll, we'll go through some cases and then at the end, we'll go over some of the research that we're doing. Okay, so we'll, we'll do some definitions because I know I like to dive straight into it, but my colleagues tell me, listen, it was a long time ago when people did genetics. Um, so we'll cover some of these aspects and then we'll do the cases and the uh, research and then we'll, we'll hopefully close out with some summaries that are good uh, conversation um, starters. Okay, all right. So what is precision medicine? Um, lots and lots of definitions out there. Okay, in many words become part of our vocabulary and we use them. We sort of know what they mean and they're, they're difficult to pin down. Um, and there's words such as individualized, bespoke, uh, personalized, all these get used together. Um, but they actually mean slightly different things. Okay. It became very popular when in, in 2015, um, President Obama announced the Precision Medicine Initiative, which we'll, we'll talk about. But some people will say, look, it's a form of medicine that uses information about a person's own genes or proteins to prevent, diagnose, or treat disease. And that's the uh, NCI, NIH, NCI definition. Oncology, in case you didn't know, really catapulted the way forward with clinical genetics, far uh, exceeding um, other specialties, uh, including our own uh, in cardiovascular. Um, other definitions that have come out, so it's an evidence-based approach, is what the AHA says, that uses innovative tools and biological and data science to customize disease prevention, detection, and treatment, and improve the effectiveness and quality of patient care. So that's slightly different from what uh, the NCI are saying. Um, NIH All of Us and the National Institutes of Health, again, redefining some of these uh, definitions that we have there. But one thing I want you to take away is personalized does not equal precision, because if you talk to any of the um, uh, more senior faculty, they'll tell you, well, we've never done a one-size-fits-all. We always personalize the treatment. So we want to draw that distinction from, from precision medicine. Okay. Here's a picture of President Obama in his State of Union address in 2015, when he announced that he's launching this precision medicine initiative. And it's a bold new research effort to revolutionize how we improve health and treat disease. And the mission statement, which I'm just going to read out to you, is to enable a new era of medicine through research, technology, and policies that empower patients, researchers, and providers, I prefer clinician, to work together towards development of individualized care, okay? So again, you're seeing some of these uh, words that are interchangeable, but the key words that jump out are, are really that we wanna combine research technology and we actually want patients involved, we want researchers involved, we want clinicians involved. And instead of being in silos, we get together and say, right, how can we transform care now for the future? And I'm gonna 
show you that some of these things are actually already here. As part of that, there was a commitment of $215 million of investment that will go into uh, the NIH. Um, and the NIH All of Us program was, was announced. The NIH All of Us program is uh, a fantastic resource that plans to recruit 1 million individuals and 25% of whom need to be non-white. So most of the sort of uh, biobanks, biorepositories out there have a heavy um, slant towards white populations and do not represent the, the other uh, human beings that make up our societies today. So that's something they want to change. Sometimes you might hear it, hear it called US biobank. Um, and that's really because the UK biobank started in 2008 uh, initially faced lots of problems and difficulties, but has now just become an amazing resource for researchers out there that are, and, and has truly democratized um, data. So the US version of that is NIH All of Us. And what it plans to get right is double the number of patients versus UK Biobank, but also include non-white populations. And I think they'll do that very well. And they're going to do things like integrating things like your activity monitor in your iPhone uh, or your smartphone that can then tell people, you know, what's your sleep-wake cycles, um, surveys that are being done. So it's, it's absolutely amazing. All right. You, you heard the term omic, okay? Um, there's lots of omics out there. There's personal, there's genomic, there's pharmacogenomic, proteomic, metabolomic. Um, there's the microbiome, uh, which we were discussing last night very briefly at, at, at dinner. Um, so what they really mean is, look, if, if you hear that term ohm, so instead of just a gene or genetic, when it's genomic, you're saying all of the genes, essentially. And when you say proteome, uh, we have the technology now to be able to do these high throughput things, where instead of just looking at a single protein or, or a couple of proteins, you can actually look at someone's entire signature of proteins. And you can do it in like $200. So problems no longer become getting this information together. The, the, the problem now is what do we do with the data and how do we integrate them? Because you may have an expert who's a proteome expert who, who says, I don't know, metabolome or genomics or microbiome. And that's the problem because, again, we're just in silos and we need to get out of that. There's even a pollutome, which I actually quite like. So that's all our um, polluting um, uh, molecules out there combined together and you can actually measure this stuff so you know people can go around and measure the air quality for example and see what what exists in your pollutome locally all right so uh, the I, I want you to really remember this now this slide here what, what we're saying is think of where we're headed is that we've got all of these aspects now we can do a transcriptome so if you take a, a heart biopsy you can actually run to see what are the RNA signatures within there. So in other words, you know what's gene expression, okay? Because all the genes are not on all of the time. And then you want to know what proteins do you make and are they defunct or not, right? So you want to know are they overactive, underactive? Um, have they lost certain functional characteristics? Um, and then you want to know how does that affect um, metabolites? And then you can go back to the person and look at what's called the phenome, so that means all your phenotype put together. And there's actually very sophisticated tools now that allow you to go through someone's electronic health record and actually build a phenomic profile. So this is a way, if you read some of the papers about this, you'll start to say, well, why are they jumping from one to the other? Because now we can and actually open up the door to areas that we may not have looked at. But the other cool bit of these data analysis approaches now in that we're able to 
say, okay, we're collecting all this information, but I, I really want to know, you know, what's their sleep cycle? Okay, what's their diet like? So you can merge all of these things into people's electronic health records, and you can use AI machine learning tools to try to help you get the signal from the noise, okay? Data is no good on its own. You want information in that data. That's what matters. There's piles of data out there and being collected on all of us all of the time. A lot of it is, is not helpful, right? But if you're clever, you can look to see what sort of books somebody buys, what sort of political affiliations they may have. And you could even manipulate an election by targeting those people and saying, hey, these, these issues are important for you. How can we take it another way? So people are using our data out there. and We just got to get smart how we do that in medicine. Okay. Central dogma. All right. You've all got your coffees. You're all ready. Okay. Let, let's go over this. I obviously love this, the central dogma of biology. Um, and, you know, my inspiration for all of this, I'm, I'm just going to declare it up front. You know, I'm a big Trekkie. And growing up, I watched, you know, The Next Generation. And I was just sharing that with my children recently. Um, and uh, the, the ship doctor, Dr. Beverly Crusher, one of the episodes actually is able to sequence someone's entire genome and figure out what's gone wrong with this alien that's been hacking them. And that was actually my inspiration to say, this is amazing. It's the code book of life. It's what I want to do. I was sharing this story with my children. I was like, no, no, honestly, I'm telling you. I remember sat in my, you know, at, at home in England and this is, this is what happened. I was like, wow, look at the power of this stuff. So for me now, uh, you know, as an undergraduate to see the human genome get, get done to where we are now is just absolutely fascinating. So I love the central dogma of biology. Okay. Essentially it says we've got DNA. It's a code book of life. It's a universal code book, right? So if you go to plants, you go to animals, we're all using um, essentially the same code, right? Um, it might be then transcribed, okay, into RNA. And then that RNA is translated into proteins. And then we have all these post-translational modifications. Those proteins have structural components and functional components. We have 23 chromosomes, right? One pair of sex chromosomes and then 22 autosomes. So that's some of the language you're going to have to get used to as we get more and more into genomic and precision in heart and vascular when you hear those terms um, thrown around. Okay, timeline. So I was saying to you, look, um, the, the biggest thing here is that we've gone all the way from understanding, you know, DNA, the structure of DNA, the Watson and Crick model um, of the double DNA um, uh, helix, and then how we've actually gone to 2001 when the human genome um, was done. And I was an undergrad then, just blown away by that. Um, but of course, that was only, you know, one individual at the time. Now we've got to a point where if you look on the right here with Moore's law, uh, which really says that essentially it, 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 it's related more to, tra uh, to um, transistors rather than and computing power rather than genomics, but we've taken the principles. And that basically says that at some point when you have a major discovery, the time to get to the next step in the major discovery gets shorter and shorter and shorter. So actually we're able to develop and discover things far faster than we could. So one example might be, for example, making the, the, the vaccine right, for, for SARS-CoV-2, it took scientists across the world eight, nine months to actually get a product out there, which would have taken years previously. So this principle applies, and it applies to genomics in that we're able to do a $1,000 genome right here, right now. I can order it for patients right here, right now. The big problem is, what do we do with it? And this is where you need to understand this really important figure. 
that depicts the overall relationship um, between penetrance and the probability of a variant causing disease. So here's allele frequency, okay? So it's very rare and it gets more common on the x-axis. On the y-axis here, what we're saying is that the effect size, meaning it has very little impact to very high impact. How do we organize all of this? And some of the science of all of this is particularly fascinating because as you all know, monozygotic twins are genetic clones. They are nature's natural clones that exist out there almost identical. And the reason I say that is sometimes there can be germline mutations that can take place that can make them subtly different, but they generally have the same nuclear uh, chromosome and also usually the same mitochondrial genome as well. But what's fascinating is that twins don't always get the exact same disease. They don't die at the same age and they die of different causes, which really says, well, okay, if that's our natural experiment there to look at what happens to a clone, what was different? Well, monozygotic twins are also raised in a very, very similar way. The environment's usually very, very similar. So what could it be that is therefore changing that? You can look at dizygotic twins, which are 50% similar, just like any other, um, other sibling would be, and the environment is, is similar. But what we realize is that, you know, if we think of Gregor Mendel and his famous experiments with peas, and where we, get men, men, uh, where we get Mendelian disease, monogenic disease from, things don't really hold up to that model as easily, okay? And that's the idea that you've got um, these sort of rare alleles that cause Mendelian disease over here with a high uh, effect size and penetrance. Well, that's monogenic disease, but that's only the small chunk of most disease out there. Most disease is polygenic. Multiple variants that interact together with a low effect size to come together. Um, and one of the analogies that, that I particularly like is that it sort of genetics loads the gun and the environment, your lifestyle, uh, what you do afterwards, uh, your epigenetics and all the rest of it decides on whether the trigger is pulled and when that trigger is pulled, which I think is a very nice uh, analogy to get it. Because sometimes we say, look, Mendelian disease, as I was just saying with monozygotic twins, you can find the penetrance can still be different. And it means there's other things going on that we don't yet understand. It's a very, very important concept, this, because the other thing it tells you is that you see, if you have a rare allele and it's deleterious, that usually there's death of the organism if it's so deleterious. And that death of the organism should happen um, uh, in, in utero, okay, or very early in life. So in other words, that person can't now reproduce to pass on that allele. The big difference with one of our Mendelian disease and cardiovascular is its adult onset. And it tends to be autosomal dominant. So you only need one um, bad copy versus the, the wild type copy to actually cause disease. But people are able to reproduce and pass that on. It's a really, really important concept versus you know, um, almost lethal, severely deleterious alleles, okay? All right, pedigree symbols. I won't dwell this. I've really left this just so you have some extra reading. But family trees are very important, okay? We have the square uh, symbol for uh, male. We have the circle for female. Somebody who's affected is, is shaded in black. Uh, somebody's heterozygous is half shaded. If you're diseased, you put a line through it. But we draw all these complex um, family trees and here, the thing to remember is that we go by sex. So the NIH definition of sex is chromosomal. Um, gender is everything else. And we don't really get into that in biology because 
you know, quite quite frankly, it would be very hard for us to be able to deal with all of those um, complexities of, of human gender, applying that to biology. So to keep it simple, uh, for us who are dealing with this, we actually deal with biological sex there. And then if the sex is unknown, you can put a diamond shape in there, okay? So what are the modes of inheritance? Just very quickly, I've mentioned that autosomal dominant, which can be early or late onset. Most, most cardiovascular disease is late onset. Um, autosomal recessive disease, and by that we mean you need two bad copies, um, and that will then give disease. Um, this idea, though, that autosomal recessive where you only have one bad copy, and that bad copy therefore means you're a carrier is generally what's what's taught out there. So cystic fibrosis is a good example of that, where many um, European uh, ancestry individuals actually carry that, but the chances of having a child are actually quite small uh, because you'll have to get um, two bad copies aligned in that um, next offspring. X-linked dominant and X-linked recessive. So the X and Y chromosome, the Y chromosomes, remember, physically shorter than the X chromosome. And where those alleles exist on the X chromosome, there's no counterpart on the Y chromosome to match that. Um, so if you have a matching counterpart and there's only one uh, allele that's affected and it's dominant, then that's X-linked dominant. But if it's recessive, you either need two bad copies in a female or in a male for that particular gene, one copy is sufficient because you have no counterpart allele. So the Y chromosome is shorter. And then maternal, otherwise known as matrilineal or extranuclear, is the mitochondrial genome. And you, you'll all remember when the spermatozoa um, join the uh, ovum, what actually happens there when the nuclear material combines is that, that the mitochondria are outside of the head of the sperm and the, only the head will actually enter. So the uh, rest of the tail and all those other components, the motors that cause the swimming are all left out. So the mitochondrial genome is not paternally inherited, okay? Um, so you only get it from females and that's where you may have heard that term, um, the two important terms in population genetics, are out of Africa theory, okay? And the Eve mitochondrion. So what do we mean by that? Well. The genetic data show us we come from a single female, no doubt about it, because it's only matrilinear mitochondrial. And it doesn't matter what um, racial or ethnic definitions that we impose on the world, right? Um, so our models that we put and project out say you're this category of human being, you're this one. Our mitochondrial genome is incredibly conserved uh, and aligns with us having one single uh, original um, foremother, I will say, rather than forefather. <laughs> okay. All right, other really important terms. So um, you'll hear these branded around, if, especially if you use an inherited service. And sometimes I think we struggle with like, well, what, what's the difference between penetrance, expressivity, and what happens with both? So if you look here, you've got um, some, some of these eggs, let's say, that are shaded in purple or white. And what you're saying here is that when you're less than 100% penetrant, not everybody expresses the disease. So uh, if everybody expressed it, all these would be purple, right? So very few diseases are 100% penetrant. And that's a really important concept because if you carry the gene, what it's saying is you might not actually have the disease. That's something to think about. What does that do then? If you genotype somebody and you genotype family members and they are part of the, the lucky ones who are never going to express disease, how does that impact them? Because there's a law here, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, that protects you um, against genetic discrimination. So think 
you know, X-Men, mutants, and how they're outcast, right? Um, people don't want that happening to other human beings because no fault of your own, you inherit the genes that you get and you get the mutations that we, we're, we're, you know, our DNA is changing in all of us. You know, our somatic cell lines change and cancer is fundamentally a genetic disease. And that's what happens, right? You didn't have it necessarily at birth, but um, people then develop enough hits to be able to uh, lead into uh, un un uh, unregulated cell proliferation, which is what cancer is, okay? So uh, how, does, how do we deal with that? Well, Gina here protects you. So for essential insurance, health, life, sorry, health insurance, um, motor vehicle insurance, home insurance, it doesn't affect it. So they can't discriminate against you on that. But luxury insurance, life insurance, disability, travel, that there's actually, it doesn't protect you on that. So it can affect people's ability to get things like life insurance. And it's really important because there are cases where people have just gone and ordered the genetic test in good faith without counseling them about this. And then they've gone, well, I carry exactly what my mother has. And you said it's autosomal dominant, one bad copy is enough. Yes. But you're telling me I'm healthy, everything's fine. Yes. So I'm, I'm kind of okay. And now I'm, you know, 40. So yes, I think you're going to be okay. Try to get life insurance and they're declined or charged for extortionate premiums. So this is a very, very important concept of penetrance. Okay. And then the next thing is variable expressivity. Okay. So here, what you're saying is seeing is the different shades of lavender and purple that are there. So what you're saying is that the phenotype is, is changing. And in some people, it can be um, particularly severe, it can affect um, other parts of the heart or outside of the heart. This is variable expressivity. So, for example, if we if we look at hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, most do not get skeletal muscle problems. But once you get into the syndromic and non-sarcomeric, you know the expression of those genes can be highly, highly um, variable throughout the body. And then here at the bottom, you're saying, well, actually, the reality is you have variable penetrance and you have variable expressivity. Um, and that's what makes it really hard to uh, see the patient in front of you and the family. And that's why we talk about phenotype and re-phenotype. Okay, this is there for your uh, reference. So if you want some additional reading material, I strongly recommend that you pull these up. Some really good statements that have come out from the AHA. There are also some very good um, statements that have come out from the Heart Rhythm Society, uh, the European Heart Rhythm Association, um, the ESC, um, I recommend that you look at those. And then the American Council of Medical Genetics and Genomics have published some really, really important um, documents. And HFSA, Heart Failure Society of America, has published some on cardiomyopathies led by Ray um, Hirschberger. Okay, so um, let's dive into some cases and get your brains firing. And let's say, am I just selling you a load of, you know, uh, stuff that's not helpful or does it actually make a difference? So let's go with a case. 68-year-old female, she has a history of hypertension, diabetes, she has sleep apnea. She's got a CPAP machine. She swears she uses it. She refused to get vaccinated. She got COVID. And she has a witness collapse with loss of consciousness without warning. Her husband evaluates and notes that she's grunting. And he really pointed this out to me. So oh, grunting, that was a weird thing. So I checked her pulse. There was no pulse. So I moved her from the sofa to the floor and I started CPR. Did it within two minutes and he got ROSC. And she was alert and actually sat up. She was neurologically intact. The ambulance crew was called. They arrived. And they noticed that she's got sinus rhythm uh, with this particular ECG. She's taken to the ER and admitted. She has troponins done, which are normal. So we know it's not a heart attack. Okay. She gets a CT triple rule out. Very nice. No PE. No aortic dissection. 
and no significant coronary artery disease. Fantastic if you can get it, okay? She gets an echo, shows some concentric LVH, some diastolic dysfunction, and I'm called, hey, what do you think is actually going on? And a CT, I will say, I didn't really play this, but she does have some consolidation in, in her lungs from her COVID that she's actually recovering from. Um, and we also do a CT head just to make sure she's not had a cranial event. Let's just look at this ECG. Anybody want to have a go at this? Please, please, please go for it. I've highlighted it. <laughs> Sorry? Very good. Yes. So the QT is prolonged. Okay. And the other thing you'll notice here, I put the highlighter over here as well. This is a narrow PVC. Okay. Would you all agree with that? That's a PVC. Look at the T wave versus a T wave here. Okay. Now look over here at the T wave. Okay. So it's more than just a prolonged QT. She's actually having PVCs and she's having this phenomenon. Anyone know what that is? Please go for it. How would you describe that if you look at a 12 lead ECG and the T wave keeps changing? Repolarization abnormality? Is it ischemic? T wave alternans? That's T wave alternans, okay? Macro T wave alternans. So you can only measure T wave alternans with dynamic ECG recording. You can do micro T wave alternans. So if you do a really good halter, you can actually measure that out. This is macro. And actually in the long QT world, this is a really bad adverse prognostic marker. So we ask her a little bit, huh, what's your family history? And she has a son who had an aborted sudden death when he was 18 years old. And he carries this SCN5A mutation that's definitely pathogenic. And he has an ICD and he also got atrial fibrillation at the age of 39 and required an ablation. And he's also had lots of shocks for polymorphic VT. So we asked a little bit and she said, well, you know, I was told I'm okay. I'm 68, I'll be okay. That I've not shown anything so far. And I, I don't have the ECGs of when she was first evaluated, but let's assume they were normal. Um, what more could we have done here? Could we have actually done genetic testing? And, and we did. And it confirms that, that actually she has the same variant. And she was always told her T waves were abnormal because she's got hypertension and hypertensive heart disease. That's not, that's not un, unreasonable, okay, to put that together. And then while we're working her up, you know, doing all of this, she has this right in front of us and ends up getting shocked. But that PVC is back, okay? We check a potassium at 3.7 and magnesium is normal. How do we control that now? So here now we have to apply, you know, EP. We give her IV esmolol and we give her some magnesium. Magnesium is brilliant for torsades, okay? It probably doesn't really help in anything else. I'm wearing my EP hat. Magnesium for AFib, I'm not convinced, okay? But magnesium for torsades is actually really good. Put them on a drip and it will help stabilize things. But we've got this right bundle, right inferiorly directed PVC that's narrow, that suggests it's from the conduction system, from the fascicular system. She has three more arrests in front of me, okay, <laughs> despite doing all of this. And the IV esmolol is now causing bradycardia. And uh, at this point, we're sort of like, well, how are we going to control this, which is now VT storm? So we actually decide to put in uh, an AAI pacemaker, an overdrive pacer, put the esmolol on, um, correct her electrolytes, and then hopefully we should be able to get her out of the hospital. So actually what we did then was transition her onto Nadalol and we stabilized the VT storm 
She got this dual chamber ICD implanted. We AAI overdrive suppressed it. But acuity was still incredibly long. So here's now where we applied precision medicine. We know that she carries an SCN5A, sodium channel 5A, gain of function mutation for long QT3. Regarder syndrome is kind of the opposite when the SCN5A is involved. That's a loss of function in SCN5A. So we know she's got QT, uh, long QT syndrome 3. She's got macro T wave alternance. She's got incredibly long T wave, uh, QT interval of sort of 560, 600. We can't use all the drugs together under control. How can I get a QT shorter? Because our goals are to make it less than 500 milliseconds. I can't let her go home. She'll just keep getting shocked. So here, what we did, we gave her mexility. So we actually knocked her sodium channel out. So having that genetic information helped us to know that she's gain of function. If you knock that sodium channel out, you make the QT better. And I hope I can show you here. And not only did we make the QT better, we're A, pacing her, but we've made that T wave stable now. And I saw her as an outpatient. She got a little bit of hair loss and we thought it might be mexilatine. So what we actually then did was put her on flecainide with mexilatine, which are not FDA approved, but they're really, really highly specialized. And she's had no further shocks. We've controlled her QT interval. So really nice case where, you know, genetics there made a big difference in terms of what we were going to do and really important clues within there about what's going on. And it's a real world case that, you know, I'm sharing with you is that she had everything else, LVH hypertension, sleep apnea, they don't walk in like a board review exam, you know, 18-year-old with SCN5A and what do you do? This is real life and, and how we make a difference with it. Let's, let's do another really nice case. 46-year-old female presented with palpitations. Um, it was hemodynamically tolerated monomorphic VT that we actually saw, okay? No syncope, no presyncope. And then she also had these PVCs with a 17% burden. Her intrinsic sinus ECG was normal. Her T waves were normal. Her echo was normal. She had a pre-procedural CMR. I've just got the stills here that showed the RV was a little bit dilated, but the ejection fraction was normal. There were no regional wall motion abnormalities. There was no late gadolinium enhancement of the LV or the RV, and there was no fatty infiltration. So we decided to take it to the EP lab and get rid of these PVCs that are bothering her and sort out this VT. And actually what we found is that these are left bundle inferiorly directed with a V5 transition. In other words, they're coming from the right ventricular outflow, outflow tract on the septal region. Um, and then she goes into VT in the case. And of course we start the ablation within 10 seconds, it's terminated, which for an EP is like heaven. It doesn't happen often, okay? <laughs> so we get very excited about that. Then we thought, you know, why does she actually have this? If this is just outflow track VT, that's actually one of those safe VTs um, that you don't need an ICD for, right? We talk about VT as structurally abnormal and structurally normal. Structurally normal heart VT is a very good outcome, or does it? That's really the, the question, or these assumptions that we have made based on retrospective observational data. So we, we decided to do a voltage map. So what you see here is the right ventricle um, from different projections, here's the outflow tract, uh, and here's the mitral valve, sorry, the tricuspid valve coming in. You see all the way here at the apex, purple here is healthy, red is unhealthy. Um, both the bipolar and the unipolar voltage maps here were grossly abnormal. So let's just, just piece all that together now, okay? You've got someone with VT, the RV is a little bit dilated, okay? And actually, if you get into the history, she's actually... Uh, 
an ex-marathon runner. Okay, so she's got a little bit, maybe athlete's heart is what we were thinking. Um, her EF is normal. There's no regional wall motion abnormalities, but she has this VT and it's more, mainly coming from sort of the outflow tract area. Okay. Is it just outflow tract VT or is it ARVC? I'm sure that's what you're all thinking, right? Oh, this is probably ARVC. And that's what we wanted to know. But how do you know that? So you do a voltage map and it's telling you this is grossly abnormal. Okay. We decided to do genetics on her. We actually found a change in PKP2, which is the most common variant seen in arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. But it was reported as a variant of uncertain significance. So when you get genetic test results back, they come back in one of three ways. They're reported as the variant. And that's a new way for saying mutation, all the X-Men stuff. We don't want to offend anyone. So we actually call it a genetic variant. Okay, And then we have to classify that variant. And we call it benign or we call it pathogenic or likely pathogenic, or we call it a variant of uncertain or unknown significance. So VOS is the term that we'll use. So if you hear that term out there, that's what they mean, okay? So VOS in PKP2, what can we do about this? And then the big questions that come up, what are we going to do? Should we implant an ICD? Should we screen family members? So um, Hugh Hopkins has built this ARVC risk calculator from the Hopkins group where you can plug in all of this stuff let me just draw your attention here. It says, do not use this for people who do not meet the task force criteria for ARVC. Does she meet the criteria? Her RV is essentially normal structurally. No, she doesn't. Okay. Her EF's not dropped. She doesn't have regional wall. Her sinus rhythm ECG is normal. She does not have any T wave inversions at all. Okay. She has no epsilon waves, right? Her TAD time is short. It's not prolonged but she has these abnormal voltage maps and she has this VT. So she doesn't meet criteria, so you can't really use that calculator. In the end, it's a judgment call. And we said, look, that PKP2 may be it. This, we, we may have, with the advent of the technology we've got, caught a patient so early in the journey of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy because the cases we hear about in the clinical iceberg are the ones who have survived a cardiac arrest or have very advanced structural disease. You know, it's quite rare to get advanced structural disease. My very first case of ARVC I saw was actually a, a, a lady who was a, who was a Gurkha in St. George's, London, who had such severe RV dysfunction, she actually ended up with really bad renal failure and ended up getting a heart transplant. I saw the tip of the iceberg there that got me into ARVC, but the majority do not have that overt structural abnormality. They have this period where there's this concealed phase and then this very early phase where the disease changes and something happens. They might report things like myocarditis type episodes, right? And they may just get these PVCs, they haven't syncopized. On the disease spectrum, we're seeing it so early. How do you know she's not going to be ARVC five years from now? And then you apply the risk calculator and it says, ah, yes, she does have it. You could probably argue to give it a... So we made the justification that she's got monomorphic VT, even though it's stable, to do it for secondary prevention. We gave her a sub-Q ICD, okay? Here it is. <clears throat> Eight months later, she decides to do this, <laughs> okay? And then she basically ends up getting a shock and it saves her life, right? So on balance, look, it was a judgment call is what I'm saying. And these are the challenges that we actually face. I'm actively surveying her and I am screening her family members. And what we're trying to say is, is this going to turn out to be ARVC? Now, if I was a betting man, I'd say, give me a few more years and she'll meet the criteria. But it's kind of stupid to wait for the criteria to be met 
when you have a patient in front of you and you need to know what to do with them. And I don't want to implant ICDs in everybody because that's not precision, is it? That's a one size fits all. And sometimes we treat ourselves, right? It makes you feel better that you gave them an ICD and that you can sleep easy at night. But the, the reality of it is we have to be judicious in our use. And here, I think what we're going to show once her family members all come for evaluation is that PKP2 is probably going to get reclassified from a VUS into pathogenic. But that's the work the inherited program now has to do, which doesn't generate many RVUs except for the family members being screened. Okay, case three. Uh, this one's a, a, a quickish one, but 28-year-old male referred for sports pre-participation screening who has frequent PVCs. He endorses remote history of unexplained syncope. On physical examination, he has a mid-systolic click and a mid-late systolic murmur. He has an echo, and the echo shows mild LV dilatation, an EF of 50%, and a Barlow's myxomatous mitral valve. Let's see if we can play you that. Billy, they played before, didn't they? <laughs> okay, we definitely tested these earlier, guys, and, and they, they all played fine. So I'm um, not sure what's going on there. But anyway, you have to trust me here <laughs> that there's a jet of MR there that you see at the top here. Okay. And this is a, a Barlow's valve. And these are the PVCs that we're getting. These PVCs are coming from the um, papillary um, muscles. Okay. And there's, okay, clinical questions then. All right. Should we repair the mitral valve? Okay. Um, patient has excellent exercise tolerance, ZF's 50%. It's moderate MR by the usual criteria, normal pulmonary pressures. Should we do more history? Should we do an MRI? Should we do a zero patch? Should we follow up in six months? These are real questions that you would all face. Is there a right or wrong answer? I think it's totally reasonable. Um, you know, you could justify either way to do what you're going to do. But here's what we did. We did a halter episode. There were episodes of non-sustained VT, and we became worried about something called arrhythmogenic mitral valve prolapse. And we decided to put him through an MRI scanner. And the MRI scanner here that, that you see on the still um, just here, there's something I want to draw your attention to that wasn't obvious on the echo that we picked up on the MRI. And you can indeed see it on, on, on echo as long as you get the views. Something called MAD or mitral annular disjunction. What that means is the mitral valve annulus and the true LV myocardium are actually separated. And this is something that's an adverse sign. Let me show you the late GAD sequences here. Here's the septum, interventricular septum's pretty thin, young, healthy guy otherwise, but look at this white stripe in the middle. It's got mid-myocardial late gadolinium enhancement. So then he's referred to EP, hey, what should we do about these PVCs and what more can we do about it? And so we said, oh, send it to the inherited clinic and we do what we do best. We take a family history and guess what? There's all these family members who actually have mitral valve prolapse and non-ischemic cardiomyopathy potentially from the leaky mitral valves, right? Um, or there's something else going on. And we said, Let, let's do a genetic test here. The genetic testing came back as positive for a frame shift and a truncating variant in lamin A, okay? Lamin A is one of these high-risk um, genes, as I'm going to show you in a minute. And then we find all these other family members are actually affected. So going back to the clinical questions, what should we actually do here? Here we've got all these features put together, right? We've got mitral annular disjunction. We've got this thing called Pickelhaube signs. When you do tissue doppler imaging, what you're getting is rapid changes here, and it looks like a, a German helmet, okay? 
Um, and then we've got all this scar and then we've got this gene. Should we implant an ICD? Well, let's look at what the guidelines show us. So on the left here, we've got the 2017 AHA, 2019 Heart Rhythm Society on arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. And then here, the most recent ESC guidelines. Um, suffice to say that they all now recognize that if you've got a lamin A mutation and your EF is near normal, you should actually seriously think about putting in an ICD. They don't talk about mitral valve prolapse, but I'm, I want you to just, you know, I want to be sort of put the cat amongst the pigeons here. We were talking about this at, at dinner last night. What is arrhythmogenic mitral valve prolapse and who is high risk? And I just showed you these are all the risk factors that tell you somebody's at high risk and you should think about putting in a defibrillator. Um, but what about genetics? So this case we've actually written up and we have a, a small series now that we're putting together where we've actually looked for some of these genes. And the main mechanisms of arrhythmogenesis in mitral valve is actually physical. It's traction, it's that mitral valve uh, leaflet cordy pulling on the papillary muscles that causes this PVC that can trigger um, VF or VT, but also sustained traction on that papillary muscle can then lead to scarring um, within there, okay? So this is a kind of like, this is what I enjoy about this and our conversations um, uh, last night uh, were how do we connect the dots? Because most mitral valve prolapse doesn't do that. Most is benign. Most has a really good um, outcome. Okay. Case four, I'm going to, I'm going to whiz through this. 21-year-old African-American descent, BMI 30, has some sleep apnea, says he uses CPAP, comes into the ER with palpitations. The 12 DCG is below. What do you see? AFib. Agreed? Good. We start the deltiazem drip. And of course, what happens when deltiazem starts? He cardioverts himself. It's not the deltiazem. Okay, don't believe that. It's literally when you connect it and he just cardioverts. <laughs> I wish it was that powerful. <laughs> all right, so the 12 EDCG here has gone back to sinus rhythm. Any major abnormalities? Would you all agree that sinus rhythm, normal R wave progression, good QRS voltages, the T waves look fine? Agreed? I would pass that as normal. But we did an MRI, okay? We don't have any imaging guys here. Do we want to have a stab at this? Okay, so again, I'm sorry, the movies aren't playing. I'm just going to restart that. Billy, uh, I may need a hand here, please. Just to restart this. It's all frozen. My mouse is frozen as well. So um, while Billy's fixing that, essentially this is a normal MRI. Okay, at the bottom left, we did a T1 look locker sequence, and that was normal. And then um, the cines are all actually normal, and there's no late gadolinium enhancement. So question for you all um, is then, what about AF in athletes and younger patients? Yeah, it's just not none of it's playing. The mouse is getting stuck as well. Yeah, I think the laser's gone now. All right, so basically, AFib, you've got a young guy in front of you. That's not an un un uncommon thing that we see. What do the guidelines now tell us? Okay, well, if you're, if you're an athlete, you can get AFib. If you've got sleep apnea that's untreated, you get AFib. If you're overweight, you get AFib, okay? Guidelines have changed for genetic testing now. We used to say it was a class three recommendation. Do not do genetic testing in somebody with atrial fibrillation. That got changed last year. So Heart Rhythm Society um, published that to say that actually we know there's all these genes where we get AFib. The thing I want you to remember is somebody gets AFib, some people get tachycardiomyopathy, right? You, their EF drops, their LV can dilate, you get them back to sinus rhythm, their EF recovers and all of that. 
Why does that not happen to everyone is the question that you should ask, right? Well, I'm going to propose that some of them actually have a genetic cardiomyopathy. They don't tolerate it as well. And that's what we're now realizing. So titan, the number one gene that we see in dilated cardiomyopathy, is now the number one monogenic gene that we see in AF. So what do the guidelines tell you? They're under 45 and or they have a really strong family history, actually just do the genetic testing. So we decided to follow the guidelines and did it. And guess what we found? Um, we found TTR, okay, which causes amyloid. Um, so this African-American gentleman has the exact same common allele that's seen in the African-American population for TTR, but he has not shown any features of amyloid thus far. Isn't the AFib just part of the amyloid process, the atria being affected early? That's potentially it. So we're now going to follow him more closely rather than there, there, there's your medicine and we'll, we'll deal with that in, in due course. Okay, I'm going to skip through this case just in the interest of time. And I'm going to fast forward to say, so I can't play any of the images. Um, essentially, this case had obstruction. I've shared this case with you before at the symposium last year. But what I want you to understand is here, genetics played a massive difference in how we managed this case, because it actually turned out that this woman had Anderson Fabre's disease. And we genetically tested her. We excluded all sarcomeric genes. We found that she has a variant in uh, GLA, which causes Fabre's, but it was came back as one of those VUSs again. And here, the cool thing that we did, we actually evaluated her children. One of her sons has symptoms, one of her sons does not. We did the GLA gene test, and the son who's affected has the same variant that she has. And the son who's unaffected does not have that variant. And then we measured serum alpha-1 galactosidase levels. And they were normal in her, they were abnormal in her son. What does that tell us? That tells us that this is X chromosome lionization, which basically means with females, both X chromosomes are not expressed at the same time. One will get switched off, but which one gets switched off is quite random and it depends on that cell line. Starting from the zygote all the way down to the multicellular organism, it's random which one happens. So in women, if the, the wild type allele is switched off and the GLA that's the abnormal one is now on, actually they'll show disease. So in London, the number one, the number two cause of conduction system disease in females after sarcoid is actually Fabre's is what we found. And people say to me, including at eminent places here, but there's no LVH. So you don't need the LVH. You can just have subtle conduction system abnormalities. But the beautiful thing here where we took metabolism and linked it to the gene was we measured alpha-1 gal in her son but you can't do that in a female because overall their alpha-1 gal levels are totally normal because they have enough activation and inactivation to make sure that that balances out. So here we then got this VUS reclassified as likely pathogenic. So her children, when we screen them, um, her son is now eligible and has actually started a precision therapy. So enzyme replacement therapy is what he's on and it's not affected his heart so far. His son does not, her son does not need an ICD or anything like that. So we're really pleased that we've been able to prevent disease progression um, in uh, her son. Okay. All right. I'm going to um, skip um, through this very, very quickly. 54-year-old um, female Hispanic ancestry basically has a DCM. She gets a BIV ICD. Okay. Um, she has atrial flutter, fib. She gets ablated. We organize an MRI. And we get all this horrible imaging artifact, but we do get some LGE and we can see that the septum here and here is actually scarred. Okay. Again, this is real world images that I'm sharing with you. So we run a gene panel 
And to our amazement, it comes back as positive as PRCA G2. PRCA G2 is one of those things that causes hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But in, important things of what the genetics did for us, we excluded known DCM genes, we excluded known sarcomeric genes, and we excluded amyloid and Fabrase. And this PRCA G2 gene that we identified um, as the candidate, we're essentially saying that this is actually advanced PRCA G2 cardiomyopathy. So here we did family screening of daughter one. She was pregnant at the time. Her ECG otherwise looks normal. Her son, who came and did the ECG, and then her other daughter, we did the ECG. Look at this, grossly abnormal LVH with pre-excitation. So we had a bet in our clinic, and we said, who do you think is going to be gene positive? <laughs> right? And guess what? The genetics was negative in this daughter. This one declined, but I reckon is negative. And then we tested this daughter, and sadly, she's positive. Now, the amazing thing is she's 29. She's fit. She exercises. She's one of these people who does this whole Peloton thing and, you know, hold its high-intensity exercise. We put her on a cardiopulmonary exercise testing. It was totally normal. VO2 max was great. But this is what her echo shows. Is a, I don't think it's going to play it again. Okay, but would you implant an ICD? What's sudden cal death calculator show us? I feel like I really need to show you this. Okay, so I'm just going to play it in this mode. There's a lot of effort gone into bringing you this case. Look at this for hypertrophy. I showed my wife and she was like, where's the bloody blood go? I was like, well, there, there you go. There's no room for it whatsoever, okay? And then we actually did some late GAD sequencing. And look at all this, scar, scar, scar. What I want you to take away here. Oh, they can't see it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. oh, my apologies. Okay, just go back one, see if you can play that. I just tried that and it wouldn't project actually. I really wanted you guys to see this, okay? <laughs> this is an amazing case. Anyway, getting back to the, the mother presented with a non-ischemic, she was dilated, she had a bi-VICD, right? Um, essentially, she has what's called burnt out HCM phenotype. I've tried to get her pictures from 2009, 2008, because I have a feeling she had hypertrophy. It just people missed it for whatever reasons. And then when she did present with advanced heart failure, the LV was dilated out. And we found this PRCA G2 gene. And then we showed you those ECGs in the um, daughter, two daughters and the son. The son and one daughter were normal. One daughter had um, pre-excitation. So PRCA G2 cardiomyopathy is really important to know because it's not sarcomeric. It's a glycogen storage disease. And you'll remember inborn errors of metabolism tend to present at neonatal very early in pediatric. Not this one. This one is adult onset, the usual age is 40 years. So you can see how chunky that ventricle actually um, is. Thank you very much, Billy. Okay. Um, and then here, look at the late gadolinium enhancement here. An incredible amount there. So the questions are, you know, do you put an ICD in? Which calculator do you use? How do you manage obstruction? And so PRACA G2, this is what we actually did, right? The sudden death calculator shouldn't be used for this. Um, uh, PRACA G2 sequencing, there's just not much you can actually do about it. But we ended up putting in an ICD 
um, ended up putting it a sub-Q ICD. Here's a reference for you. I was going to talk a little bit about HCM, but I know we're, we're short on time. But the big thing I wanted to really share with you, um, hopefully these are now playing, the HCM comes in different phenotypes. I've shown you a, a GLA case of Fabrase. I've shown you a PRACA G2. And the variation in anatomy, that variable expressivity that we talked about at the beginning, is all of this with the sigmoid sectum reverse contour, mid-cavity obstruction, and apical variant HCM, okay? And these are the phenocopies that we have to exclude. What I want you to take away is if you use imaging and use genetics, you can exclude these things because the management is different, okay? The sudden death calculator doesn't include PRACA-G2. So actually, you're on your own. It's a judgment call, okay? It also doesn't apply to Fabrase. How do we manage obstruction? I, I want to make you aware of this drug, the cardiac myosin inhibitor, um, Mavicamptin, which is now FDA approved. It's the first in class drug that actually affects um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It does that by actually uh, affecting the sarcomere. It's negatively inotropic and it targets a mechanism of hypercontractility and it improves myocardial energetics. So it's now approved to be able to um, do this for patients. There's some trial data there that I'm, I'm just going to whiz through, but essentially the FDA have approved it for anybody who would be a candidate for septal reduction therapy that you can now consider them for this drug. But the big worry everyone has is it's so powerful, it drops the EF, patients don't develop heart failure. So there's this REMS-based system that really helps us do that. And the question is, how is this going to change management in 2023? We now have a precision medicine drug. Do we have to go through the usual management of HCM, beta blocker, verapamil, disapyramide, or will we just be going to myosin inhibitor? And if that fails, send them for a myectomy. Okay. There was some research I wanted to share with you, but I know we're, we're short of time. I'll leave the slides in there, but just to say that population screening or precision health the, this, this, this paper that we published last year in circulation, the nice thing is that what we showed is that actually healthy individuals, you do find these variants, but the penetrance is very low. So if we're trying to make a case for offering population-based genetic screening, it's very difficult to do that. But this slide, I really want you to, to take away. If we looked at what kills you, so it doesn't matter what the cause of death is, it could be heart failure, it could be a sudden death, any cause, you're going to die if you carry these genes. I don't know what that means. Does that mean you've just got a, a predilection uh, for a problem with a, a genetically unhealthy myocardium that's now more susceptible? I don't know. But for the first time, we showed this signal. Now other groups are starting to show these signals. So future of precision, I think we're going to be combining all of these approaches, as I mentioned to you earlier. Gene-first screening, this just came out. This was a simulation. Basically said, we can save lives, but it's going to cost us a lot of money. All right, so I'm going to conclude here. Genetic testing is just going to grow. That's all I want you to remember from this slide. It's going to get increasingly utilized. You can't avoid it. It's going to turn up in your clinic. It takes a multidisciplinary team. It takes people like genetic counselors. It, taught, it means that we talk to imaging, EP intervention, uh, our cardiac surgeons, our physiologists to, to get together and say, we need to figure out what's going on with these cases. I put Genomics England there because their model now, which I think we're going to adopt in the US, is to devolve genetic services. So instead of everything going to clinical genetics, is actually say you have your own expert, neurologist who's a neuromuscular disease genetics person who deals with that. And anything weird and wonderful, syndrome, you can't figure it out, the diagnostic odysseys, send them to clinical genetics because basically we're massively understaffed, same in the US as well. Okay. Um, I think what we're going to see and I'm excited about this with my scientist hat on, is we're going to go bedside, bench, back to bedside, back to bench, so quickly 
the 15 to 20 years to get a drug is going to change. We're going to discover things far, far faster than we ever did before. And this is the future now. Data harmonization, taking the EHR, um, using their wearable technologies, collecting all their omics and piecing it together to say, you know, how do we figure out what this stuff is? So I'm going to conclude there with some take-home messages, hopefully bang on the dot. Um, so genomic precision is here. Okay, it's just set to grow. The model of having a cardiologist with expertise in GPM, or genomic precision, and inherited is the key. Through cases, we've shown the power of genetics to redefine clinical diagnosis, guide our management, and prognosticate. Family screening is crucial. For example, we've just shown you that PRACOG2 case where we're going to save her daughter's life rather than just leaving her going by a symptom-based approach. Um, know the guidelines for genetic testing have changed. We now actually include AF. Genetics of long QT makes a big difference to management, as we showed in that one case there. Arrhythmogenic mitral valve prolapse. I'm putting this out there. I'm not saying we have the evidence, but is genetics part of that you know, perfect storm that leads to sudden death? Females do get Fabrase, it's lionization, and it can mimic cardiac conduction disease all the way through to overt hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. PRACA-G2 is one of those important glycogen storage diseases that presents in adulthood. So don't think, oh, it's out. It's just pediatric. It's not true. Mavacamptin is the first FDA-approved drug for treating sarcomeric HCM. Would Mavacamptin have helped us in the PRACA-G2? colleague of mine phoned me and asked me. And I said, no, because the mechanism is different. So there, genetics is important, again, to try to figure out why they have HCM. Gene-first screening strategies show a lot of promise. I haven't delved into the data, but I'm, I'm tempering this to say we have to have return. We can't bankrupt health systems uh, or countries by doing genetic testing where there's no actual yield. And if you have things like low penetrance, there's a lot of unnecessary testing for the rest of their life. And we have to be cautious about that. I'll, I have a review, a state-of-the-art review that will be coming out on that soon that will discuss that. So there are lots of knowledge gaps and they will only get worse unless we address training. And I'm lobbying for change um, that we actually, you know, have training there. This slide from uh, Eugene Brunwald on the left and Michelle Hassiger on the right are from their latest grand round and keynote speaker sessions. The cardiologist of 2032 applies genetic information and AI in prevention, diagnosis and treatment. And here you see genotype imaging, EP, it has to all come together. So the leaders in the field are telling us that's what's going to happen. There's a course coming out. It should have come out last year, but the AHA had to go through due process. It's definitely coming out by April this year. Okay, look forward to that. It was a, it was a pleasure to work with my colleague, Andrew Landstrom, to do it. If you want a cheat sheet to print on the wall, this is an infographic I made for the ACC. There's a link. Print it, put it up on the wall. It's a reminder to all of you about the genes. It summarizes this talk in one slide. Okay, I want to thank our team at Wellspan. And I want to thank all our research collaborators. And we'll stop there. Thank you. And you heard things that, frankly, some of us had touched on in our lives, but they're so complicated and, and explained so well. And, and what does it mean to us today? So I do think we have some time for questions. I know those of you that have to go should go. Um, but, um, you know, what, what I was like fascinated by is, you know, you talked about, you know, these diseases that we don't at least recognize that often, Fabrés you know, the arrhythmogenic uh, mitral regurgitation case. I mean, 
now you as clinicians, how often do we see mitral regurgitation? How often do we see cardiomyopathies? You know, they come through our echo labs, they come to the cath labs. You're like, oh, you got a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, your coronaries are normal, go home on your triple therapy or four therapies, right? So I guess my question to you is, you know, when precision medicine in the cardiovascular space comes to full fruition <laughs> as it as we go through this journey, what percentage of sort of the common diseases we see, atrial fibrillation, non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, congestive heart failure, will have an underlying genetic sort of signature that will alter our therapy? Are we thinking about 1%, 2%, or do you think, as you suggested, that it might be a larger portion of our patients? I, I think um, if we take all Mendelian disease, right, the way to think about it is Mendelian disease and multifactorially inherited or polygenic is the other term used. Things like coronary artery disease, as you know, in your field, premature CAD, FH, right? And I've been hearing that since I was at medical school, Alistair Hall, who has FH and advertises that, has been drilling it into people to check for it. People don't check for it, okay? We were told it was one in 500, then one in 250. Well, guess what the latest is? It's one in 175. So we know they get premature CAD. So if you see a young patient with CAD, it should automatically have triggered that evaluation and then put into place cascade screening, okay? So uh, you only, it's or some okay. dominant. By that you mean family, Cascade family, family screening, screening. Yes. yes. So they should have invited all first degree blood relatives, parents if they're alive, siblings, children, okay? That's what should happen. And now you'd suddenly have five or six, half of whom should probably have the disease by probability. Yeah. Agreed? Yeah. So all you're going to find is it's even more prevalent than you realize. Let's take hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, sarcomeric, it's one in 500. Let's take DCM, it's one in 350. And if you include ischemic in that mix, disproportionate ischemic, et cetera, it gets to one in 250, right? Um, and then arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, it's about one in 5,000. Restrictive, we don't really know the true population prevalence. What about things like amyloid that causes infiltrative disease? African-Americans, about 4% carry that variant that was identified in this young man who's otherwise, okay, a little bit overweight, but had AFib. And what's going to happen with him? He's going to present to you with advanced heart failure. So actually, I think we don't know is the answer because all these population prevalence estimates are based on epidemiological data on phenotype. And it's usually more aggressive bits on that clinical iceberg that you see. So what about all this subclinical disease, which is where we end up in prevention, precision health versus precision medicine? Precision health is, is really the screening bit before you have disease. Primary prevention, can we get in there? And that's the big challenge. That, by, necess by, the, by the way screening works, it has to be sensitive, which means you're going to catch a lot of things that are unnecessary. That's what worries people. But what do we know as the true overall prevalence and in the incidence? We don't. We only have things like Framingham or just epidemiology project to tell us that. I think what we're going to find as we combine it all, it's going to challenge what we understand as disease. And that's what I meant by redefining nosology, because we're saying, what, what do you mean by non-ischemic? What does that mean? That's 150 different heart muscle causes, right? That, you know, that's where I think it's going to change it. So I think we're going to see more disease and we're going to redefine the disease we are going to see increasingly a genetic component. The Mendelian disease, yes, will be easy. The multifactorially inherited disease, which is most of it, the diabetes, the hypertension, and there's a lot of lifestyle becomes harder. But we're going to see things like polygenic risk scores come in, 
that are going to say, right, if you're a smoker, it doesn't matter what your polygenic risk score is. That's the biggest risk factor. You've got to stop it. Lipids, fix that. Then polygenic risk scores, et cetera, will be adjunct to that. So I think then they'll help us in, in this area to figure it out. Um, someone like yourself who probably could get polygenic risk scoring done is well-informed, well-read, looks at your diet, looks at your lifestyle. That polygenic risk score, does it improve outcomes is the big question. And that hasn't been consistently demonstrated in the CAD area and, and not yet in AFIP. But the Mendelian stuff is the one that we want to pick up because they're going to get the titan cardiomyopathy. They're going to get um, amyloid. So, right, there's just unbelievably, um, unbelievable insights. Um, and we as clinicians, Jamie? Thank you. Anwar, thank you for an excellent presentation, very enlightening. Uh, so at our lipid clinic, we routinely do genetic testing for patients with severe hypercholesterolemia and severe hypertriglyceridemia, both for familial hypercholesterolemia and calomacronemia syndrome. So uh, about 20% of the time we get back this VUS. Uh, how do you counsel those patients? So uh, I, I gave you a couple of examples where we get VUSs. The big problem with the VUSs is that essentially why are you getting to repeat what it means in case? Yeah, so, so what the, the question there is a variant of uncertain or, or unknown significance. Remember I said the genetic test will come back saying either this is negative, you have the wild type regular version most healthy humans have, or there's a change and the change is going to be classified into benign or likely benign, pathogenic, likely pathogenic, or variant of uncertain significance. The difference between what is variant of uncertain significance from likely benign to likely pathogenic is 5 to 95%. There's a huge variation. So the question is, why do we keep getting VUSs? Because we haven't yet figured out what is normal genetic variation, right? That makes us taller, shorter, rounder, et cetera. It's generally not considered a disease from what is actually causing a disease. To get that signal from the noise is the difficult bit. When we counsel them, which is why I strongly advocate genetic counseling should be done pre-test and then post-test, and it should be done by whoever's qualified to do it. The law doesn't require a genetic counselor in most states. I don't know the, uh, I don't know what Georgia's rules are, but I would say you know there's things you should do and things that actually are best uh, or optimal care and best practice. I would say get a genetic counselor because that's what they've spent their time doing. And the pre-test counselling will say, hey, this is what it's going to come back as. The VUS, we're not sure what it means. And over time, that will either get classified into benign or likely pathogenic as we get more and more data. What can you do to try to reclassify it in your clinic? You're going to clinically screen the family members anyway. And in lipids, at least you can get a lipid profile, which is something quantifiable that's measurable, as well as you looking for the other clues of the Friedrichsen classification of, uh, you know, different, um, you know, dyslipidemias that you see. Uh, you could then offer VUS resolution, for example. So you could draw a pedigree and say phenotype positive, negative, and then say who carries this VUS, who does not. If somebody shows the phenotype and doesn't carry the VUS, the VUS is out instantly thrown out as it can't be this then okay if the vus tracks with the disease so it co-segregates in the family it's giving you evidence that this is likely to be the cause so for us with cpvt just to take that example ryr2 which is the most common gene that causes cpvt most variants especially if they're germline meaning you don't see them in parents are missent single point mutation 
and come back as VUS. And if they have the phenotype, it's actually usually the cause and we get it reclassified. So the VUS reclassification depends on the disease is what I'm trying to say there. Hope that answers your question. Thank you. Yeah, it does. Thank you. All right. Do we have any more questions before we depart today? Uh, we have one question back here, and then this will need to be the last question we take today. Uh, thanks for an uh, enlightened discussion there. So I'll kind of go back to a comment that you made about a non-ischemic. So for the heart failure program, we do have a standardized pro, uh, protocol. So all these patients do get genetic testing, so they, they don't get treated and, and sent out. And we found, I think, about 20% of these patients actually have TTN. Uh, mutation, which I think is consistent with a national uh, database. Uh, so, so much so that we have identified a pretty large cohort, and now they're looking at clinical trials that specifically target the TTN pathway as a dedicated treatment. So, we'll be able to enroll some of those patients in those clinical trials. Um, as, as we've done a lot of genetic testing here, what, and I think I discussed this with you at the last conference, we're seeing more and more patients that actually have multiple hit mutations, right? So, I do have a gentleman who's maybe 24, 25. He's got TTN mutation and also has a known mutation. Um, what are you, uh, and again, as we're looking, we're finding more and more interesting combinations. What is your approach uh, to patients who have uh, two, for example, two genetic mutations who potentially may have different phenotypic presentations or expressivity, but they coexist in the same patients? And how do you uh, tease those two out? Thanks for that. Um, absolutely superb um, question. So what we're saying there, um, just to rephrase it for the audience, is that sometimes you do a panel of genes and it comes back with a one gene hit. Great. But increasingly, there are people who actually have two genes that are affected. So about 5 to 10% of these Mendelian diseases are actually either compound heterozygotes. So in other words, they're two alleles are both disease causing. Okay, so that's a double hit or they're diagenic. So for example, with dilated cardiomyopathy, Titan is the number one gene that's usually seen in dilated cardiomyopathy. So you have a, a hit in Titan, but you also have a hit in one of these other genes that can cause DCM or a restrictive cardiomyopathy or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And the example you gave there was Noonan's, which are rasopathies. So what, what happens in those situations? Well, we know when you have a double hit, you tend to have earlier onset of disease. You tend to have more severe disease and it's actually more likely to be penetrant. So actually, they're higher risk. So for long QT, certainly for the risk calculators there, we actually say, do you have a double hit? Because if you do, well, you, do you remember uh, Javel Lang Nielsen and Romano Ward, right? Romano Ward syndrome is the dominant need single, and Javel Lang Nielsen is the recessive version. So you can be recessive because both bad copies are the same, or compound heterozygotes, both are bad copies but different. They're born with hearing problems, right? So they get more severe disease. They're deaf. They have low fetal heart rate. So these ion channel diseases, when you're double hits, cause earlier onset disease, more severe disease, um, and, and disease that actually can have expression throughout the body, so not just the heart. And I, I absolutely agree with you. There's no solid guideline, uh, high evidence-based recommendation on what to do. It's a judgment call, and I treat them more aggressively is the answer. Well, um, that, that was amazing. Thank you very much for coming. Um, it, it sounds like Dr. Chahal has a few more minutes. I heard from Billy that we have some time before we go 
record in the recording studio. So if there are any additional questions, maybe you can take it offline. But Anwar, thank you so much for coming it's and enlightening pleasure. us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And breakfast is still being served. Please grab yourself.